After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome, everybody, to Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu Marcus with another episode of this podcast. And for those of you who can see, because you're watching and listening to this podcast on YouTube, uh, by the way, all of our podcasts are available on YouTube, if that's convenient. And certainly, uh, like the Mind Rolling ones, or I, I video all of them. So I kind of like seeing people myself. But um, so for those of you who can see, you see this big poster. I'm going to move aside Becoming Nobody, this new Ramdas film, which I've been telling everybody all about for some time. Everyone's busy being somebody, says Ramdas. And uh, the message here is that it's going to be available finally because it's been in theaters throughout the uh, the fall of uh, 2019 and in January 2020 it will be available as a download or a DVD so look at uh, Ramdas check out ramdas.org or join if you are not on the email list of ramdas.org uh, please do get it, get on it because we have all sorts of wonderful offerings uh, that are free and so on. And uh, you'll be able to know when this film is available. So, uh, and by the way, if people, there's lots of people who did join and they can't, we get mail like, I never get anything from you. And basically, you got to look in your spam bucket and get that fixed up, okay? Um so I also want to welcome a new supporter and sponsor, and it's a company called Follow Your Heart. I have known about them and followed that heart for a long time, especially when I was in L.A. when I had a record company here. And uh, they have a product called Veginase, which is an egg-free mayonnaise that I cannot more highly recommend. I told them, aside from whatever announcements we give about this particular product it's available everywhere okay everywhere not just whole foods and uh, uh those kinds of uh more conscious shall we say stores although it's all owned by amazon gee whiz um but uh so it's easy to get and it is uh, it is just something i use for everything you know from salads and making your own dressings to uh to using it for uh 
I just had some uh, eggs. I know not everyone eats eggs, but I do. And mixing in veginase with those eggs and a little salt's unbelievable, okay? All right, I haven't done any uh, recipe programs yet. Uh, so check it out, all right? Check out uh, veginase by Follow Your Heart. And of course, we also have to uh, shout out to 1440 Multiversity. Go to 1440.org. Sharon Salzberg and Omid Safi, both of whom have podcasts on the network. They have something great going at the end of January into uh, weekend, the last weekend in January, starting the 31st, uh, called Path of the Courageous Heart. That would just be fantastic. You know, that's right near Santa Cruz, California. It's an absolutely beautiful campus. So those are a couple of the things that are going on. Now, to the podcast. Now, you may remember, have I mentioned, uh, we did the Ojai Ramdas Immersion Retreat. We do them twice a year. That's something else worth getting on the list. Um, and we have many spots we make available uh, for the Ojai Retreats for people who are not able to afford going to weekend workshop. Well, this is actually Thursday through Sunday night, so it's like a four-day four day thing. Um so those are becoming available too. So check out uh, the next one will be, oh, I've got to think, Memorial Day weekend 2020. Okay, so you've got plenty of time. Figure that out. Um, and you know, the interesting thing is what happens at these retreats. So this, I did a thing with Suri, Lama Suryadas, who was at the retreat. And... Uh, we had a beautiful conversation. The whole retreat was around guru and devotion, devotion and the guru. And he's a, you know, he's done a lot of practice, Lama Surya Das, like a few stints at three years, three days, three hours in, in, a, in a cave. In this case, it was probably a room in France where he did these things. Uh, so he's done a lot of practice and he is, uh, he met Neem Karoli Baba and then he had uh, many um, in Maharaji, Ninkaroli Baba became his root guru, as he calls it. And but he has others like Karmapa and Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche and many others that he has studied with. So he is. Uh, we had a wonderful chat that really brought together bhakti, the the yoga of devotion, with uh, Buddhist wisdom, basically. Um, but what happens at these things is, is just a, a beautiful coming together of people in one heart as if they were joined together. It's what Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, he said to us once, the same blood runs through all of our veins. And uh, the way that that magnetism through through this uh, heart practice, the way that that magnetism happens is extraordinary, and I've seen it. I've seen it in the Ojai retreats that we do. I've seen it in Maui at the retreats we do there, and I've seen it. I just came back a month ago from uh, working with Saraswati um, on the uh, yatras that we take people 
following in Ramdas's footsteps and it's just a fantastic retreat going around to all of the places that Ramdas and I and Krishnadas and others were with Maharaji in land of the gods as KK I mean as it is called he has a, a book called Deva Bhumi which means land of the gods uh, so that trip uh, is uh, is extraordinary for the same reason, and then for the reason of actually being in these incredible holy spots where these siddhas like Maharaji walked. Uh, and on that one, uh, there's one coming up March 13th for 10 days. Go to nourishinglife.com slash yatra. And I highly, highly recommend for anybody who wants to go to India and is in it in any way concerned, which you should be navigating that without knowing what you're doing. Um, this is all taken care of by Sarasati's and beautiful staff of people, uh, both Western and India. So uh, that's all of the commercials that we can do today. And here is so. I told you that this talk comes from this retreat with, uh, it was with Lama Suryadas and Nina Rao and Saraswati Marcus and myself and um, at this beautiful camp that we found, campgrounds in Ojai, California, where we're now ensconced. And uh, I want to read just, there, there's one quote that, uh, that uh, Suryadas mentioned actually from his Holiness the Dalai Lama, and this goes to the core of satsang, of like-minded community, why we come together in this way, one, one major reason. Uh, well, this couldn't be more major if you tried. We need each other to become enlightened. This is not, we are interdependent. This is such a, a strong message. It cuts through all of the kind of polarity that we see all around us and within us. And uh, as he said, Surya, um, we can develop warm, empathic compassion, not just cool, calm, discriminating awareness wisdom, which is what Buddha, for me, especially most well, Buddhism in general, but certainly Tibetan, uh, these lamas that have come along in the last, you know, hundred years and lamas that we have actually met and are still with us, uh, it's pretty incredible uh, to see the kinds of transmissions that are available to us at this point. So, um, yeah, we can develop that warm, empathic com compassion, um, and that along with the discriminating uh, awareness wisdom is, uh, is a tremendous feature of what we do in all these circumstances, because Ramdas certainly represents that combo, and that's why we have Buddhist teachers at every one of our retreats uh, that we do through Love Server Member Foundation. So there you go. Uh, this is pretty great. I told some pretty nice stories about uh, Westerners experience with Neem Karoli Baba and Suryadas told stories of his experiences with the likes of Karmapa and Dilgo Kensi or Rinpoche. Uh, so it's a lovely, lovely intersection of two um, 
really, um, I can't think of the word. What's the word for the way in which these two uh, paths, you know, it's, it is said that all paths, once you get to the top of the mountain, they are the same. So I think of these two paths that you can, you can tread that path using both of, of the uh, arms of it, shall we say. So I'm, I'm really, uh, it's the thing that makes me most proud about these retreats that uh, we, we put on, wherever they may be, from India to California to, uh, to Maui. So please do um, enjoy this podcast on Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and check all of them out. I mean, there's some just fab. David Nick Turn, I've been talking about, he's got that new book, um, to check out and uh he's doing some podcasts with uh, pretty marvelous uh, people so check that out as well and we will see you next week namaste so this is from it's a couple of stories it's just to give you a feel of 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 maharaji beyond the kind of aphorisms that are out there that everybody knows, you know, sabek, all that stuff. Um, so Balaram Das took this picture, took many of the greatest pictures of Maharaj. He let him have total access. He, he followed him everywhere. No, we couldn't find Maharaj, and we finally found him. There, Balaram would be there. I mean, he, was, uh, he drove Ram Das completely crazy because he wouldn't do anything except for his own self-interest, which was great. It was the self-interest of just being in that thing. He couldn't leave. Of course, it took him like 10, 15 years to get over it when Maharaji left, but other than that. Um, so this is from Balaram. I'd like to say something about how we were received, not only by, Mar by Maharaji, but by the Indians there. In spite of the fact that we did offensive things culturally, but somehow they didn't care. I guess they said, well, first of all, they're not doing it on purpose. They're ignorant. <laughs> Second of all, Maharaji doesn't seem to mind, and so they didn't mind either. They certainly were generous and tolerant to an extreme degree. I'd go to the temple and watch the way the Indians would express their devotion. I saw that some would take an apple, peel it, slice it, and put it on a leaf plate. I saw them do that several times and thought, I could do that. So I got an apple and I had my Swiss army knife and my leaf plate and I peeled and sliced the apple. Maharaji was sitting there talking with a few people and he looked at me holding the plate of apple slices towards him. When I would do something like this, he would, he would get this look of amazement. It was as if your dog sat up and talked to you and you'd look and say, my God, he talks. Look what he can do, he's so cute. <laughs> Maharaji looked at me with this beautiful look, so much love, you can't even describe it. This is Balaram. Um, let me find, there's another one that I, that's really... Oh, here it is. This is Ramdev. Yeah, you remember Ramdev? Sure. Ramdev, who has been here, actually, and 
done one of our retreats. He's like, a, and he and he's does podcasts on our Be Here Now network. He's like, uh, he got um, a PhD in statistics or mathematics from Stanford. Okay, that's how he's like a brainiac, Ramdev. So here he is in this complete bhakti thing, you know. Um, I had this experience where Mohan and I, another one of our brothers, and a couple of Westerners were there with Maharaji and a bunch of Indians. He and Mohan were talking about, about the price of skim milk in America. And they were going on and on and on. He asked Mohan, how much is a kilo of skim milk in America? And Mohan would say, X number of rupees, and Maharaji would say, can you believe it? Can you believe how much milk costs in America? <laughs> and, wow, Maharaji, no. They were doing this for the longest time, and I'm in the back thinking, maybe this guy isn't quite who I think he is, right? Maybe he's a little senile after all. I had only been there for a very short period of time, and I just got my PhD from Stanford, and I felt pretty smart. I'm thinking, why are we talking about the price of skim milk in America endlessly here? <laughs> it freaked him out. All of a sudden, I have this thunderbolt in my mind that was clearly coming from Maharaji. It's hard to explain to someone who did not have that experience how it wasn't just my imagination. But this thing happened in my mind. And it was as if Maharaji said to me, we can talk about important things. We can talk about God and love, but that just busies up the mind. There's this ocean of love that's always available. So if you talk about something trivial, we can just dive into the ocean of love. All of a sudden, I felt this intense bliss wash over me. I was in this blissful state for many hours after that darshan. That was really a lesson for me. So uh, it was all going underneath what stuff was going on on the surface. I mean, it is tr true that um, many things came out of him in the moment um, that were obviously very beneficial for us to know. Um, On that subject of Maharaji being so uh, grandfatherly and laughing at us and being just amazed that Balaram could like slice up an apple and do that, that the Hindu devotees have been doing for years. Yeah. That, you know, like you said, it was like if your dog came and talked about yeah. something. To, um, you were mentioning the 16th Buddha Karmapa, who was such a great Lama and my one of my gurus, and lived in Sikkim, which is near Bhutan and Nepal. And he, like many Asians, are a little shorter than the average American. And I, I am a little taller, maybe, than average, being 6'2". But so, and young, my friend and I, we, he was also tall. We were visiting the Karmapa in his room, at his monastery, room tech in Sikkim, which has many levels, like a wedding cake, and he was up in the top in his room, you know, multiple level colored concrete wedding cake, Tibetan temple. And he was in his room and we were hanging out with him and he was sitting on his bed and um, some Indian officials came and kind of officiously 
and they were dressed up, and uh, the woman had a beautiful sari, looked like she, Miss, Mrs. Gandhi, and um, the men were wearing sort of suits and Indian-style suits. And uh, they spoke English, which the Karmapa did not. They were Indian uh, officials, high officials of Sikkim, India, and they were acting a little uh, proud or arrogant. So, and the Karmapa had chairs brought in for them to sit on, and me, Brian and I were sitting on the floor, like right at his feet, because we had been there already. We hang out with him, and kind of spoke some Tibetan, and then the translator came in sometimes. But they started telling about what I could catch, you know, who they were and how important they were, and one was in charge of everything, and the other one was in charge of everything else, and so on, and Mrs. Gandhi, and Nehru, and they were dropping names, and um, in the middle of this, and they're telling Karmapa, who's like a very important diplomat, Lama, head of things over there. Like the Dalai Lama is a great saint, but also a diplomat, the head of Tibet, right? In exile. So, in the middle of their telling all this, and it was going on and on, like you with the price of milk, but they were talking about Gandhis and Nehru's, but it was kind of the same level of just stuff to the Karmapa, who's a Tibetan refugee, who was just sitting there, a monk sitting in his room with his disciples. Um, in the middle of it, Karmapa says, Suridas, can you reach that light bulb? And I'm sitting on the floor, and I look at my friend Brian, and I said, yes, your holiness. And he says, stand up and take that light bulb out. They're always amazed that we can do these things, because they're like the grandchildren. It's like, oh, look, the grandchild can you know, read, or like kick the ball. He's a genius. <laughs> Just to interrupt this flow of Bekar Bhatt, as Maharaj used to call it, this general nonsense. So I reach up, and of course, it's a refugee-built, concrete building, so you know, not to any code or any plan. And uh, a blueprint I made with a pencil and a ruler. Uh, and so it's only about six and a half feet, seven feet, whatever. And I reach up and I turn it and I twist the light bulb and take it out. Like it's a prize and I hand it to his holiness. And his holiness says, give it to Brian. And then he says, he points at these, these uh, ministers and goes, see, see what they can do? <laughs> <laughs> All Westerners can do this. <laughs> they are so advanced. They're not going to do the things that, you know, that Papa's never heard of. Them. No media in Tibet knows that. Brian goes up and goes, oh, yeah. and puts it in and sit down, and we sit down on the floor again. And Karmapa says to them, See, see? They have so much good karma, they're more tall than you are. You should make more good karma by doing generosity. So you're tall is good karma if you're short. That's yeah. like not Buddhist theory. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> and he so was like chastised that the ministers kind of stopped talking and were like, they got kind of some kind of, you know, like lesson in humility or non-caste consciousness because they were looking at us like hippies and they were Brahmins, you know, that goes along with the class consciousness of England, Britain, Imperial, and India. The caste system. So they were so chastised, and then as they went out, they went like this. <laughs> and they drove away. Then they got in their like armored, you know, convoy and drove away. <laughs> <laughs>
It was amazing how tall we were. And not only that, we understood like we were like a Tesla and Edison, you know, we understood <laughs> light bulbs. Uh, I can tell the exact same story about Maharaji. We're sitting around some Indian people, he's talking to them, we sit down, and he goes, you know, these people came all the way from the West, and I am going to give them the keys to liberation. You, nothing, because you're worthless. You come here and you just want shit from me. That's what he said. Oh, boy. So, uh, many of you know Jai, Jai, Gopal, uh, Jai Utah. He's known as Jai Gopal to us. Uh, he's also taken part in these immersions and been with us forever. So, he went... Um, at, he, he was with Maharaji for some weeks, and he came to the temple one morning, and Maharaji had left. He said, sometimes you don't know how much you love somebody until they go. In some ways, that was the beginning of my spiritual life. The super well of anguish, not because Maharaji left, but because he allowed that door to open. Eh? We just talked about that. I never thought of myself as a singer till many years later. I was a musician. I was always afraid to sing. But at that moment, I began to feel singing connected to my real emotions. In the bhakti world that Maharaji opened for us, our emotions are so important. Suddenly, this dormant part of me woke up painfully and miserably. And this, then this feeling of, where's Maharaji? I love Maharaji. I need Maharaji. Where is he? Maybe 30 years ago, he said, I was with Siddhima in Vrindavan. And she was showing me Maharaji's books. Maharaji wrote uh, Ram Ram and Diaries. Dur only during the three, three years that Westerners knew him, he wrote every day Ram Ram. And then it gets to this one page where instead of the Ram Rams being written in this direction, it was written in an opposite direction. So I said to Ma, what happened then? She said, oh, that's the day you came, Jai Gopal. I started crying. It was like seven centuries of tears poured out of me. Just the fact that she would know the day I got there, just the fact that I was noticed made me fall apart. How did they notice I was there? The soul realizes that it was actually seen by the power of Maharaji. Hmm. I never heard that from Jai, that's beautiful. Now to sort of connect this all up, which I just went, Surya, Surya Das came down from his talk earlier. I said, well, we have a tape of this, and if we play this to your Buddhist colleagues, you'll be uh, expelled from the Buddhist uh, canon. And that's... Uh, that combination of, oh, you know, I mean, and Surya Das really represents this, of holding the love and yet uh, discriminating wisdom, I would call it, that we get from what, the t certainly for me, because I, I also am very much into the Tibetan wisdom, and, and back in the day, we 
started, you know, we did the Vipassana meditation. That was a, he never told us to do it, by the way. It, sound, it was more like, I wonder how I can get rid of these people. <laughs> you like, he used to send us here and there, right? Like, yeah, and he'd Ananda go. Ananda Maimaz in Benares, go to Harashra. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Muktananda's in Delhi, go and have his darshan. He's a great saint. Yeah. Serve all the saints, but also with the jow. Yeah, yeah the jow, jow. And, uh, or he would say, you going to the course? In English, he'd say, course? Oh, yeah. You going to the course? And uh, off we'd go to the course, and then we came back. I remember one time we came back from the course and sat down. He was again with some Indian people. Oh, you're, so you know how to meditate now? Show me. <laughs> so we all went like that. And within three seconds, this high-peeling laughter. Look, they can meditate. <laughs> it was nuts. That was you were there too, Parvati. Uh, so, um, but the, uh, I, I have become, over the last number of years, really uh, feeling so much presence of this one Tibetan master that he spent a bunch of time with. His name is Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. I would highly recommend any, get any of his books. Uh, and there's a wonderful film, do you know, Brilliant Moon, I think is the name of it. Yeah. It's incredible, you know. And uh, Trungpa Rinpoche is, is in this film. And, and you, you s talk about devotion and how Trungpa made fun of us. And Ramdas said in that talk yesterday, but I heard how his devotees talked about him and I saw him in action. And he was so reverent towards, you see it in this film, towards Dilgo Kensi. I mean, it was incredible. Um, so this is Dilgo Kensi's uh, just something I picked up from him talking about devotion and the guru, is, which is the essence of everything we've been talking about here. Devotion is the essence of the path. And if we have in mind nothing but the guru and feel nothing but fervent devotion, whatever occurs is perceived as his blessing. If we simply practice with this constantly present devotion, this is prayer itself. When all thoughts are imbued with devotion to the guru, there is a natural confidence that this will take care of whatever may happen. All forms are the guru, all sounds are prayer, and all gross and subtle thoughts arise as devotion. Everything is spontaneously liberated in the absolute nature, like knots untied in the sky. How great is that? Can you just talk about being with him? Okay, because I'm, this is a, I have a, a little bit of a regret that I didn't actually, I could have, but didn't really know about it at the time. Too busy and worldly stuff, maybe. Well, there was a lot of stuff going on in those days, and a lot of gurus, and we were doing a lot of things. Um, and Dingo Kinsey Rinpoche mainly uh, stayed in the Himalayas, so he visited America a few times. But he wasn't here, living here like Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche was, um, who was much younger. I remember Dingo Kinsey Rinpoche, who was the master of our three-year retreats, uh, and one of my root gurus is so loving. His presence was huge. He filled up the whole space, but he always had time for he everybody. He was six five or something. Yes. Right? He, in Tibetan, when it, they called him a man and a half. Mi Chik Dang Chaka. 
because he was tall for an average Asian. And um, he was the Dalai Lama's Dzogchen guru, which is an advanced non-dual awareness practice, Dzogchen, the great perfection. And he was so loving, he was so wonderful. I remember he said once, and this is on our subject of devotion and guru yoga, he said, one tear of devotion washes away uh, kalpas of negative actions, of bad karma. And that really touched me. Um, that really touched me. One tear of devotion washes away oceans of negative actions, bad karma. So devotion is, is so panacean or so powerful. And it reminded me that I am someone who uh, never cries, rarely cries. And um, I learned, not, you know, I was told not to cry when I was a boy. And like playing sports and boys don't cry and just do it and plunge into the line, jump off the high board and, you know, just go down the advanced ski slope, whether you're ready or not, this kind of thing. So. I learned not to cry and also keep my uh, emotions in check. So these days I've been trying to get a little more in touch with the divine feminine and be more vulnerable. But uh, I do cry in movies. I think I might have mentioned this. My, my wife, my late wife used to say, oh, that's because no one's looking. <laughs> um, but I only cry from devotion. I occasionally get a few tears of devotion and that really is a huge uh, thing for me. And then I was thinking, Dingo Kinsey was so wonderful. He was so learned. He was so immense. His presence was so immense. His boot activities benefiting others were so immense. It's worth seeing Brilliant Moon. It's a wonderful uh, film or video and has some practice components showing how to visualize and how he merged. All. You'd be interested in this. He had three main gurus, and it's animated, so it shows pictures of those great gurus in Tibet. And then through the animation, he's praying to them and practicing guru yoga, and they merge into one and merge into him through these three chakras. So it's really like instructive of how he meditated in this way in guru yoga, merging with his own gurus. And also the three of them in one in the guru principle, not as just the separate people. And then I was thinking, oh, what a great teacher, how he explains things, and he's unique, and you know, how we all rave about our gurus, and I don't know if people still do this, but in India, everybody always had a picture of their guru, and like baby pictures, and everybody would be sharing their, their pictures of their gurus, and oh, if you go there, you can see my guru, or the, my guru. So I was thinking, he was such a great teacher, and he had talked about that teardrop of devotion wiping out so much, uh, Bad, you know, negative conditioning. And then I heard that uh, actually it was first said in the 12th century by the female, a saint of Tibet, Yeshe Sogel. And I was very uh, surprised and touched that actually it had come from a more feminine source than us big guys. And it was like, that's why I noticed it. It was different than his usual teachings. It was from a female lineage, a female tantric. So I've always been very um, moved to uh, seek those tears of devotion. So I myself always have pictures around and with me, but more important to turn into the presence that moves one. That's the principle of bhakti or guru yoga, not the image, but being moved to 
experience the presence, the blessings. The darshan is the word, divine audience, the vision of the saint in person or in energy level in vision. Even now I'm getting a little tear here, which is so uncharacteristic of me. Sweet. And, and there that, are female Buddhas. Of course, you know, in Hinduism, there's many a pantheon of gods and goddesses. But Buddhism has been a very patriarchal tradition for a long time. But there are female Buddhas, like Tara, like Kuan Yin, the most popular Buddhist image in Far East, which means China and Southeast Asia. Kuan Yin, we all know of her, the female Buddha. So, uh, of course, there's no gender in the ultimate. Here's something else from Dilgo Kenshi that's beneficial. He, he said, it is always beneficial to be near a spiritual teacher. These masters are like gardens or medicinal plants, sanctuaries of wisdom. In the presence of a realized master, you will rapidly attain enlightenment. In the presence of an erudite scholar, you will acquire great knowledge. In the presence of a great meditator, spiritual experience will dawn in your mind. In the presence of a bodhisattva, your compassion will expand. Just as an ordinary log placed next to a log of sandalwood becomes saturated little by little with its fragrance. This would be a great um, analogy of why we're doing this, why we seek out to be with uh, teachers and masters that, and, and they're living in this presence. And when you go into that field, which like I used to go to Kenshi, I mean, just about every year for, you know, decades. And people say, well, where'd you go around? Uh, you know, they ask me, I'm going to India. Oh, so where are you going to, you know, Kajaraho, you know, some of these great sites, uh, incredible architecture, this. But I only went for one reason, and that was to be with Sidima, because it was to be exactly in this, what he, uh, Dilgo Kenshi describes, just to be in that aura of a being that, was free of all the me, me, self-referential, and, and, and Siddhima was lived for only one reason, that was Maharaji. I mean, talk, uh, it was beyond one-pointed. I mean, and you should talk, Nina, uh, you know, uh, will share with you, I'm sure, if you talk to her, her experience with Ma, and maybe we'll talk about it tomorrow because we're going to do uh, some stuff together. Uh, that was the, that was, my whole life revolved around that opportunity, you know. And, uh, of course, what's really necessary is what Surya Das discuss, discussed the, the other day around um, spiritual discrimination in India. The term is viveka, and that needs to be there as well, which is why it's always a, a great reason to embody yourself through practice of meditation and uh, also what Ramdas gives us, which to me is one of the greatest gifts that he's given, is an ability to look at your perspective and seeing how you see the world. And that's why yesterday he did Loving Awareness. Hopefully he'll do it again today. Um, his last number of years teaching has been so much about getting out of our heads and into 
our hearts, spiritual hearts, and which, you know, just, it, it means that little, and you talked about this, just it's a little turn, right? Mm-hmm. A turn of a perspective is huge. And you can see where you're stuck in uh, believing in the thoughts, and believing in our stories, be- chasing those habitual patterns and neurotic tendencies. So Ramdas is so wonderful because he's he has such a great grip on on psychology, our Western psychology, and is and is really able. And he, you know, in that movie, uh, becoming nobody uh, is a a wonderful microcosm of the way in which we self-identify and become stuck that way. So perspective is a huge deal alongside of spiritual discrimination. Another Dilgo Kenzie. Um, All difficulties come from not thinking of others. Actually, you can just stop there. (laughs) Whatever you are doing, look constantly into the mirror of your mind and check whether your motive is for yourself or for others. Gradually, you will develop the ability to master your mind in all circumstances. And by following in the footsteps of the accomplished masters of the past, you will gain enlightenment in a single lifetime. He was very optimistic, though. Wasn't he? <laughs> a, good, a good mind is like a rich ground of gleaming gold, lighting up the whole sky with its golden radiance. But... If body, speech, and mind are not tamed, there is very little chance that you will achieve any realization whatsoever. Be aware of your thoughts, words, and actions at all times. If they take the wrong direction, your study and practice of the Dharma will be of no use. This is partly why I really love him. He is totally uncompromising about this. I mean, I... I uh, I read something of his, and I, I talked to Krishnas <coughs> about it. It was, you know, you really ought not to fixate on all of these attachments in life, because when you leave, after three weeks, when you die, nobody will even give a thought about you. <laughs> so why are you bothering to, you know, do all? And, and when you die, you know, there's some rough stuff that goes on in those bardos, which he could explain for us, maybe not now, <laughs> but so uh, I said to Krishna, wow, this Dil- did you read this Dilgo Kenzie thing? It's really like, whoa. <laughs> and he said, well, we, have, we, we do have one thing, and that's uh, Maharaji said, I will never let go of you. And we have that blanket to hold on with. So he saved me in that day, right? You know, Dilgo Kenzi Rinpoche. I just had to, you know. Come on, give us some kind of anecdote of an interpersonal thing with Dilgo Kenzi. Well, um, first of all, I'm thinking about that, what you read, that uh, after three weeks, nobody will care about you. That's a little stark (laughs) Buddhist renunciation talk. But um, (laughs) he was so loving, and, you know, he had a, a wife, and he had two daughters, and he had grandchildren, 
and he was very fatherly also, and his grandson is the abbot of their monastery rebuilt now in Nepal, in Kathmandu, wonderful, Rabbi Rinpoche. But um, one day we were, so in a way he was, you know, in the world but not of it. And, but then we talked about cities, so cities means like unusual masters with superpowers and who don't feel separate from others and treat everybody like part of themselves. So um, just to make the point in sort of a caricatured way, uh, this is a true story. Um, I was there in the early 90s with um, one of my friends, another Lama and translator, Jakob Leshley from Denmark. And um, we were seeing Kinsrimche every day. And one day, Yak, if you've been in the third world, especially in, uh, in Nepal, it, it, there's a lot of shit and mud and puddles and lack of toilets and a lack of mm, hygiene or other things, you know, undeveloped, developing countries. So this was in the 90s, so it, Nepal is somewhat touristy, but still third world. And the, Jakob found a dead a centipede, a millipede. I don't know the difference. It had a lot of legs. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I didn't examine it too closely. It was, it was like in the crack in between the sewer and the cobblestone of the refugee village that where we lived, near Kinsinger's monastery. So Jakob, being a good Buddhist, picked it up with like a piece of paper or cardboard and wrapped it in a tissue and brought it to Kinsey Rinpoche to bless, to pray for, or something. So we go in and uh, we go upstairs into his eerie, his room, and there's a few monks and nuns there, whatever they're doing, and we bow, and then we go up and put our heads down, he puts our hands on our heads and blessing, and then Jakob takes out of his, like, Joel, his shoulder bag, this tissue, and I said, oh, oh no, here it comes. This like turd that he found floating in the pool, you know, in the Hollywood pool, the turd, you know, the story. And so he takes out this, this uh, centipede millipede, this like has a lot of legs, a giant bug. And of course it was in the sewage and the, gar and the garbage. So, you know, it wasn't even like a clean bug, like you pick up an ant in your nice spick and span house and put it outside, you know. And, and it was dead also, so it was probably already uh, starting to rot. So Jakob gives it to Kinsey Rinpoche and says, Rinpoche, can you blow on it and bless it? Because that would be sort of a way of blessing. And then we thought we would take it outside or you know, something, you know, bury it or, I don't know, put it somewhere. Yeah, with a little stuff. So obviously we were like trying to be, I mean, I wasn't, but, you know, we were trying to be like good Buddhists and save this thing and send it on to a better rebirth. That's the thinking. That is the thinking in the subcontinent of India. Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, and other styles, Sikh. And we give it to Kinsey Rinpoche. And Kinsey Rinpoche, and, you know, opens it. And he's a very big man, whatever you said, six foot five, and he has big hands and big fingernails and a gold ring on each finger there. He's a swashbuckly tantric master, not a, a little humble, skinny, ahimsa master like Gandhi. And he takes it in his gigantic hands and he goes, and then, and pops it down like an M&M. &M. 
any any, any praise may this being enter the temple of nirvana and go with me wherever I'm going. And Jakob and I look at each other and go like, holy shit. <laughs> Whoa. Tantra squared. <laughs> All one, you know. In Dzogchen, we have a, a saying about oneness. We call it one taste. <laughs> we look at each other, you know, it's like, oh, one taste. <laughs> But that was Rinpoche's genuine um, uh, way of benefiting it. And he was a very big old man who could hardly walk without help. He wasn't going to go out and like take it out and put it in the garden. He put it into nirvana, into the stupa, into the temple of his own body. Not thinking, oh, this is dirty, or oh, I might get sick and die. It was, it was like deliverance. He delivered it directly. That's great. True story. story I was yeah. there. Yeah. Fantastic. Another time, um, you know, it's not always like so blissful. I mean, I was talking about how I never cry and, and things like that, but you should never believe anything, you know, I say. Uh, so it, it comes to mind that um, once I was in a long retreat and Kinsirunche came to visit us, and so I had my half hour private interview with him, and I went in that room and kneeled down, and um, he was sitting on his bed, and a lama named Tukupema Wanga was translating, and um, he kept falling asleep while the translator was talking, because he was an old lama, and he had traveled from Nepal, and he's probably in jet lag, and he is always going, like the Dalai Lama. I mean, he always sleeps about four hours a night. So while the trans, and he was 80 years old, while the translator was telling me answers to my, you know, very important questions, no doubt, important questions. Kinsirunche kept falling asleep, and then the reverend translator, who had so much devotion to him, would, would go. <laughs> the next question. Anyway, then I, I must have asked him something really like to the heart or honest or something. Or, and, and he said something, and I just started crying. And I went out of there crying, and I sat out on like the curb crying for about half an hour. I don't even remember what it was about, because it wasn't about anything. It was like the dam had burst, the bubble had been poked. Yeah. Like with this trident, you know, yeah. or something. My ego bubble had been poked. I don't even know what, I don't remember what I asked or what was said. It was amazing. I don't know what it means, I'm just telling you. It stands out in my life. I probably cried more right then than any time else in my life. Nor was it particularly sad afterwards. It was so cathartic. Yeah. Just so the blessings is. of the guru, it's not always smiles or a peach or a sweet. Um, as Ram Das was saying in the talk before, What did he say? The difficulty or the enemy could be your best teacher. This is a Buddhist saying. He said something about this, how we can welcome the difficulties, not just run away from them. It's a Buddhist saying that the, the Dalai Lama often says that the enemy, the crisis, the disease can be your best teacher, your guru. It teaches you humility. It teaches you that uh, you're not in control of everything. It teaches you to let go and surrender. It teaches you the things, there's a mystery in life, not always ex what you expect. 
So not just to push away the unwanted or not just to recoil instantly, but to have some awareness of being able to embrace that too and learning from that. That's how we learn to love our enemies. Gurdjieff, who was a teacher of the old uh, centuries, um, who had studied, was Middle Eastern or Russian, the great Gurdjieff, you can read about, you can read his big books like Tales to Beelzebub and Journey to the East, I think it's called, no, Meetings with Remarkable Men by Gurdjieff. When his institute in, in France that had dozens of people living in it, doing what Gurdjieff called the work, working on oneself, the work, awareness work, they had one person there that was considered by everybody a real pain in the ass and a real troublemaker. It's a true story. And um, everybody tried to put up with it and be nice, you know, like the way we do. Uh, whatever anybody does, we accept it, we embrace them. Finally, the community broke down. They went to Gurdjieff and said, we have to get rid of so-and-so. He's making everybody crazy. And Gurdjieff said, He's the last one we should get rid of. We should get rid of each of you one by one. He's the greatest teacher here. It's like the irritant inside the oyster that makes the pearl. So I thought that pearl principle was a great uh, teaching. It's the irritant that makes the pearl, the virtue of adversity, gaining through loss, etc. So I won't mention any names, but there are some people here like that. But we try to be very tolerant of you. <laughs> because we're so humble and loving and wonderful. In all of the ashrams that I've ever been it's in. It's very common. It's always, there's a whole perfection of several people who, who provide that. Who provide that service. Yeah. Genji. <laughs> Genji. Uh, um, so we got a little bit of time left. How about if uh, people have some questions about anything we've been talking about? Um, there's one right there. Oh, wait, we should, oh, let's provide a microphone. So, Ram Ram. Put, put the mic. Mic right up to your mouth. So, um, I spoke with you before. The, the balance between being codependent and being selfless and giving. Wish you could talk about that and your well, point of view. That's a real um, challenge and, and a huge question and worth thinking about. Um, I think I mentioned yesterday about uh, unconditional giving or the message of the Gita of giving without expectation of return, as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna, do your duty, do what you have to do, and leave the rest to me, to God. So that's, you know, different than codependence. So what is that? Detached or unattached or royal giving with no strings attached or unconditional love, not conditional, you know. 
I love you, you love me, you know, come on, you first. Like, I'll give you the flowers, you first. Give me, some, you know, transactional, self-egocentric love with strings attached. So, if we, you, since you mentioned codependent, there's a big difference between codependent and the wounded healer and the burnt out healer that can't say no and has not good boundaries and is always breathing out and giving and the caregiver, you know, the caretaker who gets burnt out or the caregiver, we call it, who's more a giving and taking and breathing out and breathing in and more balanced. So you don't burn out that way because you're more in touch with the infinite abundance or the source. You don't think you're doing it so it's not so stressful and you don't think you are entirely responsible for them being happy or healed. They have to participate too. There's a myriad factors so we don't feel overly responsible. That's codependence. So the less you expect a result, the less co-depend, the more like proactive the giving is in caretaking. That's very important difference between caretaking and caregiving. Just like we make a difference in the spiritual practice between reactivity and responsivity. Not just blindly reacting when people push, when something pushes your buttons, but taking a breath or having a moment of mindfulness or the backward step, taking a pause, sacred pause, before choosing how, when, and if to respond. That's mindful anger management. That's very helpful. And, 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 and to expand it a little, we all need to grow up, as I mentioned before, and individuate and become someone before we can even talk about or try to become nobody, uh, and realizing our uh, inseparability or no separate selfness. So it's important to grow from dependence, psychologically speaking, to independence. But independence, you could be st stuck in a teenage independence, like just reacting against and doing everything different. He's still very conditioned and dependent. We move from independence to in realizing interdependence and autonomy. That's how we realize autonomy more than teenage independence. And so we don't become burnt out, wounded healers or victims, which is so much in our imagination. Now, of course, there are victims of crimes and all, but you know what we're talking about here, like if you can't say no to people asking you to do things, it's really hard to blame them. They're allowed to keep asking, but you're also, it's incumbent on you to say yes or no, not just have to say yes. So that's how you get burnt out. So breathing out and breathing and not being codependent, not depending on being needed, for example, as a form of codependence. Needing to feel indispensable with the secret fear that people will abandon you. So if you're indispensable, you think you won't be abandoned that's a neurotic knot that could be loosened and untied. That's a codependent thing. So I think the interdependence is very important and being autonomous within interdependence because we're not independent. We're interdependent. We're interconnected. There's a lot of things that conspire to bring us here. You might say, I came here of my free will, and that's fine as far as it goes. Nobody obliged you to be here. Like, you have to go to school till you're 16 or something. But... There's a lot of things that contributed to be here. You might even, you know, maybe you could be grateful to whoever told you about it, whoever sent you here, whoever uh, passed on the um, 
email or Facebook that came from Love Serve Remember that passed it on to you to, about coming here. So I think, uh, as the Dalai Lama said, and I mentioned yesterday, we need each other to become enlightened because we need warm, develop warm, empathic compassion, not just cool, calm, discriminating awareness wisdom. Let's uh, close this with uh, one more story of from Love Everyone. Um, again, from Balaram Das. Uh, and this is around Maharaji talking about meditating like Christ, which I had to correct him on. Maharaji never asked how did Christ meditate. I asked him how to meditate. He said, meditate like Christ. He was, uh, there was no fear when he was on the cross. He was lost in love with everyone. And then the next day we got Ramdas to ask, well, how did Christ meditate? And that's when tears came to his eyes. And he just kept, just, I'm just getting the story straight. Thank Officially. you. Officially. We appreciate yeah. that. Between you and Krishnadas. Uh, and very tears loose. came to his eyes and he just, over and over and over, he said, he never died. You don't understand. He never died. He kept saying, you don't understand. He was lost in love with every sentient being. He died for all of us. And uh, we were like blown away because you see someone uh, like this actually crying, oh, you know. Not to mention we were all Jewish, everyone around him. <laughs> and we really had no idea of Christ until that moment he manifested Christ. So here's what Balaram said. When Maharaji said to meditate like Christ, Christ lost himself in love. Everything was included in that. It wasn't somewhere else. It was all-consuming and included me. Because we did not feel very lovable. It was love. And love is what we were experiencing in those moments with Maharaji. Unconditional, spacious, all-inclusive love. The Pope never said Jesus lost himself in love. My friends who were brought up Catholic, it was guilt and shame and <laughs> sin. When Maharaji said that, it changed my thinking. Love, all-inclusive, non-specific, involving everyone, each person, including yourself. Lost in love, he became the supreme Atman. He recognized the oneness of it all as love. So that's probably one of the great definitions of our experience in India with Maharaji. <laughs>